You're listening to In Residence, a podcast out of the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts. KHN is a residency program for writers, composers, visual, and interdisciplinary artists. We provide artists from around the country and across the world with space and time to focus and create. We would like to share their hard work with you. episode of In Resonance focuses on a subject that is multifaceted and pervasive in contemporary culture, gun violence. Two of our writers in residence will share stories of gun violence. One tale is fictional, the other based on actual events. Both are extremely relevant to our contemporary situation. Writer Lila Klein moved to Tucson shortly after Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was shot there and begin questioning what kinds of influence context has, both on those who commit violence and their communities and victims. She will read an opening excerpt to her novel, in which the protagonist grapples with memories of his youth after learning that his childhood best friend committed a public shooting. First, we will hear an excerpt of a play by resident Chris Maley and his collaborators Denise Chapman and Peggy Jones. This play concerns historical events in late 1960s Omaha when Vivian Strong, a 14-year-old African-American girl, was killed by police. Chris was awarded a National Education Association H. Trenholm Memorial Award for his play This Unsafe Star, The Emmett Till Story, and his new work continues his interest in using theater as a vehicle for social justice. Chris conducted a great deal of primary source research as he developed this script, including archived news articles, police reports, and direct interviews with Vivian's friends, family, and members of the community who in some way witnessed this young girl's death or the aftermath in the Logan Fontenelle housing projects in Omaha. Hi, I'm Chris Maley, and I'm an educator and a playwright in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, I'm interested in writing plays about social justice and about inequity and about how people can uh, unite despite those differences and despite um, the histories that we've, we've all experienced. For this particular residency and for this project, I focused on a specific story uh, from Omaha, Nebraska in July of 1969. One evening, uh, a young child, Vivian Strong, age 14, was with friends in an abandoned apartment in the Fontenelle Housing Project in Omaha, Nebraska, and police were called um, for an alleged break-in. When the police arrived, the children ran, and Vivian was shot in the back of the head and died. That triggered three days of social unrest and caused fractures within the community that went down ethnic lines and have really never been fully discussed. And so that's what I wanted to explore in this residency. Um, Today, we'll have readers who will be reading parts from the play. My name is Denise Chapman, and I'll be reading the role of Carol, who was Vivian's sister. My name is Peggy Jones, and I'll be reading the role of Sister B, who was a friend of Vivian. There was a time I never wanted to grow up. I wanted to stay a kid. That's normal for most people to say. People often ask me if I ever go back. 
Do I go back to the town? Do I go back to the place where it all happened? Do I visit? People still want to talk about it. Strangers still expressing disbelief. What they don't understand is that I'm always there. I never left. Not a day goes by and and it finds me in strange ways. It's never far. It will arrive at some point in the day when I'm not expecting it. She will just appear. And sometimes it's a light memory and other times it's not. I have no control over it. The thoughts and the feelings never change. The neighborhood never changes in my thoughts. I try to keep in the moment before it was taken away. Before it all disappeared. That summer night before it all happened and I just wanted to be a kid. It's hard to describe the words, but I'm always trying to find words for it. Yesterday, I was in the garden. I thought of the word trigger. I thought of that word and its different meanings. To cause, to generate, to produce, to prompt, provoke, set off, spark, start, activate, give rise to. That all sounds nice. But the word isn't about a beginning. It's about an end. It is the trigger that took her away from me. For me, it's the negative space. To destroy, to halt, prevent, stop, to end. grew up in Fontenelle Housing Project, and it was called Lil Vietnam because of its reputation for being violent. But there was still a lot of family and everyone pretty much connected. If you lived in one part of Fontenelle, you pretty much knew everyone. And so my mother was considered Big Mama because she fed a lot of families. She was well known there, and a lot of people came through our house. A lot of strangers, as well as young people that needed shelter. That's pretty much Fontenelle. I mean, there were times when you were walking, you had to do a little ducking and diving, simply bullets. Some people were just not in their right minds. After Vivian was killed, I was sent away. My mother feared that I was next. My mother made me pack a bag and frantically ushered me off to Alabama, of all places, Camden, Alabama. I wanted to stay in Omaha. Who in their right mind would go to Alabama in 1969? I wanted to be with my family. I wanted to grieve my sister's death but I was sent to the end of the world because my mother didn't want to bury her last daughter, her only daughter. There was no electricity or running water. It was awful. I would write my mother every other day and tell her how angry I was and how much I wanted to come home. She would never reply. So I would write an angrier letter and send it off. No one was telling me that she was losing her mind. No one said she couldn't get over the grief. So on the night of the moon landing, I remember walking into an Alabama field. I stared up at the moon and all the stars. You could see every star. I remember thinking how there was a man on the moon. 
but there was no hope for Vivian. We could do all these extraordinary things, people in space, but my sister wasn't allowed to live in this world. Police is just police, no matter where you're at. I didn't have any problems with the police, but I mean, especially men of African-American descent in that area, you look around, you know, to see who's there and to see what type of officers are there who do come to help. There are times people make calls and they didn't show. You know, late getting there. And there were other times, you know, they're like that. We didn't have any problems with the police. She was shot in the midst of children. In the midst of children. We're talking about little kids here. I mean, what are you doing? It was just by the grace of God that I was not down there to see it. That was just God. Thank you, Lord, for not having me look on that because I would have been right there with him in the midst of children. But that was her life. Chris, your script is built entirely around primary source documents. What do you do to finesse those documents in your writing process so that you maintain the integrity of these sources but make this play something that, that doesn't feel so sterile or journalistic? The primary sources, as well as interviews that I conducted with people who were there, you know, it, it really reduces itself down to dialogue. And so in looking at articles, for example, from the Omaha Star uh, from the African-American perspective, you're looking at dialogue. You're looking at um, what people are saying and how they're expressing themselves in these really dire situations. Conversely, in the Omaha World-Herald, you're looking at the dialogue. So when they're interviewing citizens about their reactions to it, um, there's a lot of truth and there's a lot of sort of getting to the why within how people are talking about the issue. And and yet there's a real frustration that there, is, there, there aren't solutions ready to be found. So that's the process I went through. I just kind of went through all the microfiche and, and dug and then started to cull all these, these quotes that, that come from it. When you conduct interviews with the witnesses of the killing and Vivian's family or friends, now that nearly 50 years has passed since her death, do you notice any shifts in attitudes or perspectives as compared to the news and interviews you've collected from 1969? Mm-hmm. There's a sort of a dichotomy of maturity, and, and obviously they're, they're, they've all um, had lives after that, and that forms a part of them. But there's also this sense of arrested development, that there was this, this moment that just kind of, it came and exploded. There was no justice for it. Buildings were burnt down. Uh, the housing project itself isn't there anymore, and so that's why you hear the reading with Carol talking about the space and going back to this empty space. Uh, it, there's just um, a lingering sort of haunting feeling, I suppose, that I, I received from from the, the converse, not only the conversations, but then going to the actual locations of where where these events took place. I'm glad you've brought up the housing project because it seems like a, a sense of place or space is really important to this this play um, for contextualization as well as f- uh, catalyst for memory. You've largely finished the script, and now you, Denise, and Peggy are working to figure out how this script will take shape as a performance. Do you know how you might deal with space physically in the production of this play? You know, that's a question that Denise, Peggy, and I have had quite a bit, and, and we are actually collaborating on this project, and, and I've devoted time to kind of gathering all of these elements and then um, collaborating with them, who are, are both from Omaha. They know the community far better than I ever will, but also they're artists too, and so they know sort of the 
creative process we can go through informing it. And so right now it's in this really, I think, exciting moment where we're reading it for the first time, new ideas are emerging, and how it will look and feel in a few months could be vastly different, but that's okay, you know? And, and, and what I like about theater is that element of collaboration and taking it with other artists and finding out what it could be. And so I've always deemed it as sort of a, a larger process um, beyond just writing something. It, it, this is what I can offer it, and then I rely on others to create it, give it life in other ways. Denise, you have a significant background in performance and theater. What are your ideas for the form that this play will take? So my background as a theater artist, I do a lot of ensemble work with bodies in space. So um, the joy of collaboration is brains and bodies and um, exploring together and, and being able to highlight and bring forth things, um, interpreting things differently and then meshing them all together into something new and amazing. The space where this happened, the community that this imploded um, around these incidents, it's always curious to me because while buildings are gone, um, there is also an absence of growth and there is a delay of economic development in a way that as a young person growing up in North Omaha, always had me going, why? Why does it look like this? Why is this lot empty? Why is this? Why? Um, and when you start researching and asking the right questions to the right people, you find out that your community imploded like three times. And then they built a freeway through the middle of it. Um, and then they label you a war zone, and no one wants to come there. And as an artist, there are only so many ways I can respond to that. And to find a way to work with other artists, to share the story, to, to give breath to a memory that can be healing, that can allow other people within the community to remember, recall, come to a place of understanding, come to a place of healing, come to a place of how do we move forward out of this? Because in the not talking, in the haunting of the incident, we get stuck. Um, so there's something very special about the energy around this project because it is, it is so much deeper than words on a page. And I think the form that it takes um, is the form that it will need to be in the space and time that it needs to happen. Um, and it's a very curious and exciting ride. While thinking about how this project can grow and change, one thing we have to talk about is how unbelievably, depressingly, and dangerously relevant Vivian's story is to the United States in 2016. What are your thoughts about why we're still so mired in systemic racism and how a project like this can help us make progress? Um, so we're talking 47 years ago, which is... 47 years ago. <laughs> it's, it's not, we're not talking 150, we're not talking 300, we're not talking ancient history, right? This is, this is present day in so many moments. And unfortunately, um, more often than not, we are suffering from that adage, if you don't learn, you are doomed to repeat. Um, and these cycles, right? These cycles continue. If you were to take um, a page from the World Herald or the Omaha Star from 69 and look at anything that's happened in the last five years in this country, it is, it is definitely, unfortunately, and tragically the same 
narrative over and over and over again. And I think the thing that's most haunting for me about this process is um, Chris was sharing some of the research. And there is this line um, that, I, I shouldn't say line because it's not, it's it, this thing mm. that was spoken. <laughs> um, I thought she was a girl, I thought she was a boy. I thought she was a boy. And somehow that made it okay. Um, and it's the same way that, it's the same way that you roll up on a 12 year old with a toy gun in a park. Yeah. It's the same way that teenage girls get dragged in the street, right? They are these pieces, um, these pieces of, of me in this country, right? That are so strongly connected. And whether we're talking five months, five years, or 47 years, they are all present. Um, and it speaks volume around like just ownership of your body and space and being safe in your own country, mm -hmm. which then resonates, right, again and again and again and again. Yeah. Peggy, will you jump in on this? One of the first, probably the first kind of performance piece I did was inspired by a column that infuriated me. And um, the column had been written by someone who was conservative, and she was talking about racial issues. Um, I think she was Hispanic. doesn't really matter. But she had said, well, in the America I live, dot, dot, dot. And I thought, okay, sure. In the America you live, this happens, that happens. But the piece that I created with a friend who was, had a more of a theater background at the time than I had was, in what America do you live? And um, I think, as Denise was just talking about, the reality of this country being many things for me to many people. Um, and if you blend that with many empirical studies that tell us that black children are rarely given the afford, or rarely afforded being children or given their childhood, mm -hmm. as well as, and they're not seen as children, they're seen as much older, um, then you, and then you top it off, or not top it off, but you add in issues of gender, you know, I thought it was a boy, um, you start seeing ways that we aren't really supposed to see and that we're supposed to maintain as I teach my students about um, this epistemology of ignorance. Um, epistemologies are what we know to be true. And if you never have anything as a counter narrative, like I joke sometimes, I feel like I'm trying to teach them, no, no, the emperor is not naked, he's got clothes on. And they're like, no, 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 you know, because that's not what they're supposed to see. They're not supposed to see these clothes of injustice and racism and sexism and classism and, and all the things that can um, that exist, though perhaps in different iterations that we've seen in the past. Um, some have even gone so far as to call it like racism 1.0 is when you have the dogs, the hoses, etc. Racism 2.0 is the more subtle signs, the coded language, the I just don't think they'll fit in. And so um, as we look at this case and we see sadly how, yes, much has changed, but much has not. Um, as Chris told me once early on in this project, you know, she's our Emmett Till. She is our, our young child who was murdered and with no justice. With, with, and as Denise, you know, um, you know, talked a little bit indirectly about Tamir Rice, the young 12-year-old who was shot within seconds of the police arriving on the scene. Um, you know, it, it, it's, I think the great thing about this piece is that I hope and I know it can, open dialogue so that if people hear that police protect and serve, they can really believe it. Um, but you have to have a space to acknowledge that for many people, their truth is that what, what my part when I read it with Sister B that, you know, sometimes they come, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they come and treat you as the criminal, basically. Um, so how do you call them for help? You know, this is 
there are just a lot of issues that I wish weren't so presently, you know, um, still in play, but they are. Chris, Peggy and Denise both brought up very specific uses of language that were maybe misguided attempts to justify Vivian's killing or racial inequities in general. And I want to hear what kinds of disparities in language you encountered in your archives search. You mentioned that there seems to be kind of a clear racial divide in the voices and the the kinds of reportage um, between the Omaha Star and the Omaha World Herald at the time. Yeah, without question. Uh, the two narratives that, that emerged after Vivian's killing was one of grief, one of sadness, one of anger, one of this was the fifth teenager killed in our neighborhood in the last year. Uh, there was express of a memorial fund for the family. So that's one side that you see. Then the other side, the more powerful side, the dominant side, is why are they rioting? Why are they destroying what they have? Don't understand. We wish it would just stop. And that's it. Um, Vivian's humanity isn't present. It's not talked about. Um, it disappears. And to me, that's in many ways the schism. And we see it today with the young people who are being killed. Their humanities are completely denied. We don't know who they are. They become a corpse. Um, And the dominant culture um, just wants to move on. They want peace to be resolved, people to go to their respective places and move on. And, and what we try to convey in this piece, um, although it's sometimes very difficult because there's so much to draw upon, is that um, it is this cycle of constant, constant oppression. And at one point when I was working on the, the manuscript, I, I, I thought to myself, this is just really intense, this page after page. Um, but that's the reality. And the reality is there is no let up. The reality is there is no break in the clouds that um, parents were keeping their kids on the porch. Parents were um, telling them not to trust civil servants who were there to serve and protect. I mean, it just becomes a real heartbreaking, tragic um, situation. But you can see it in the two narratives. The split is one of humanity. Why is this happening to us? And the other one is essentially what are you doing and, and why are you being irrational? Which I think then compounds that, that anger and grief more so. With all of the killings that have happened in recent years and months and the ease of sharing information about those events on social media, why focus on Vivian's story now? For me, and this goes back to when I was working uh, 10 years ago on the Emmett Till project, and, and to me, you know, Mamie Till... Um, wanted his cask- his open casket to be seen by the world. And that, that was a cultural pivot point. Uh, with Vivian, we only have, to my knowledge, that I've seen in the public sphere, one photograph of her. That's it. Um, and so when you ha- you're dealing with a, a life and we're only given sort of this one image, and it's always next to a police officer's image, um, it's difficult to construct that humanity. And, and so that's essentially what I struck out to do with the interviews was bring her to life. Mm-hmm. Talk to her sister. What were her interests? Where did she go to school? Um, I did not want her defined by this, this bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in many ways, I hope that that is, part, is achieved as part of this, this process too. Thank you, Chris, Denise, and Peggy for joining us today. Chris Maley is a playwright and recipient of the 2015 Lincoln Mayor's Art Award. He is also an educator with Lincoln Public Schools. Denise Chapman is the Associate Director of the Performing Arts Collective 
part of the Union for Contemporary Art in Omaha, as well as a performer and theater artist. Peggy Jones is a visual artist and also an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Omaha, where she teaches and works within the Women's and Gender Studies Department, as well as the Black Studies Department. The music that you hear accompanying all segments in today's episode comes from the album Episodes by the Luke Polipnik Group. Luke was a resident here in 2014. Klein. I'm a writer living in Tucson, Arizona. I'm primarily a fiction writer, but I write essays as well, and right now I'm working on my first novel. By way of introduction, uh, the novel is narrated by a man, Joe, who's trying to understand what happened to his childhood best friend after they grew apart. And I'm going to start reading from the beginning. The title of the book is This Is My Body Broken For You. Even before he died, I had a recurring dream about Jacob. Oddly, in the eerie way dreams can plumb the depths of our psyches to harness into use some outwardly trivial but inwardly fraught detail, the dream centered around Jacob's glasses, or really the absence of his glasses. Jacob had gotten glasses young, the fourth grade. His parents bought him this horrible, oversized tortoise shell pair, like goggles, a double bar over the nose. He complained about the way the glasses looked, but his parents just said they were the sturdiest the eyeglass shop sold. Getting something different was completely out of the question, at least until this pair broke. But breaking them would come with its own punishment. The only thing would be if they were destroyed by no fault of his own. We never talked about this, but I took it as my duty to save Jacob from the humiliation of the glasses, one small act of destruction and kindness. But the truth is, I did it as much for myself as for him. I could see the act would propel me into a kind of martyrdom. Breaking the glasses would be doing Jacob an enormous favor at the risk of incurring the wrath of his dad. And more importantly, I didn't like being seen all the time with a best friend who looked like the quintessential geek on a primetime sitcom. Mostly, though, I think I feared the glasses would pull us apart, that if we didn't stay the same, if there were noticeable differences between us, as we were channeled into the rest of our lives, or at least into the fifth grade, Jacob and I would be sorted in different directions. It only happened the way it did, because just before gym, as we were changing in the locker room, one of the biggest jerks in our class, Albert Chernyavsky, teased him about the glasses. Jacob wasn't a kid who had been regularly picked on, but no one was safe from Albert. He took what he could get. When Jacob pulled his gym shirt over his head, his shirt knocked one side of the glasses off his ear, and the frames fell funny across his face. Jacob's arms were still caught too, so in a hurry to catch his glasses before they fell to the ground, his arms flailed frantically inside his twisted shirt. I watched the whole thing from a locker just across from his. Even before Albert said anything, I saw the painful awkwardness of the moment, the weakness expressed in those desperate movements. I wanted to step in and help him, but what could I do? For a shirtless 11-year-old boy to walk over to another shirtless 11-year-old and help him put his clothes on, to collect his glasses and then write them on his face, wasn't an option. So I just watched. Stuck in your own shirt, retard? Albert said. And then, with Jacob still struggling to free his arms, Albert yanked Jacob's shirt even further over his face so that his glasses fell to the ground, and the shirt now covered all of Jacob's head. It seemed like it would have been impossible for Albert to grab the shirt and pull it up that quickly without also pulling Jacob's hair, so I imagined that happened as well. Jacob didn't say anything when Albert did this, and that somehow hurt me more. He was so tangled in himself, the moment when the body responds to something that's not really a threat, arms caught merely in a piece of cotton, 
with an involuntary and irrational panic. For a second, when the glasses were somewhere between Jacob's face and the wooden bench, which they hit first before bouncing to the concrete floor, I hoped to God those glasses would break. That would make things easier. Albert, Jacob said, finally, more the response of a small child than a middle schooler, which is what we were all desperately aspiring to be. I could see the red on his face, the slack around his mouth, that told me he was holding back tears. I saw the worry, too, when he quickly bent down to pick up the glasses. I was surprised to see it. Wouldn't he be as happy as me if the glasses were broken? But I saw then that Jacob had come to rely on them, that the glasses were a kind of protection in his world. Of course they were. As vulnerable as he was in the glasses, he was more vulnerable without them. He needed them to see. But I didn't care about any of this in that moment. And even though I'd seen what the glasses, as terrible as they were, meant to him, as we walked out of that locker room and into the musty gym, the blue and red foam wrestling mat stacked up against one wall, the squeak of sneakers on the dusty floor, I knew I was going to break his glasses before that game was over. But I got carried away in the game, and he and I were on the same team, which made it hard to accidentally peg him in the face. So after the whistle blew while all the boys ran around collecting the balls, making hammocks of their shirts to carry them, I walked up behind him and said, Jacob. When he turned, I pitched the thing in his face. I wasn't that close, it probably didn't hurt that bad, no worse than any other hit to the face that might have happened during the game, although that was against the rules. But when he turned towards me, after I'd called his name, he'd had a smile on his face. So that next moment, when his face changed from something light, playful, back to that bodily fear, wrenched something inside of me. That horrifying look of surprise on his face might have been from the fact that there was now a blue rubber ball coming his way at top speed, but I knew it was more the complete shock of the fact that I had been the one to throw it. What the hell, Joe, he said. The scared look he'd had in the locker room was there again, but this time I could see something else, a deeper hurt, confusion. Why would I do this to him? Something sharp pained inside of me. Sorry, I said right away, which was such a bizarre thing to say. We both clearly knew the blow couldn't have been more intentional. Somehow apologizing for it in that moment made me feel like we wouldn't have to talk about it. That's ultimately where those conversations ended, right? With the person who'd done wrong apologizing? With a giant red mark on his face, he leaned down to pick up the pieces of his glasses. They had been strong, so they didn't split right at the bridge, as you would imagine, but instead on the two sides of it. I must have hit him squarely in his nose. I walked over to help him. He held the two lenses, which had popped out but not broken, and the two fractured pieces of frame. I picked up the small bridge. We stood there for a minute holding these pieces together to make the glasses whole again. I had been so caught up in the need to break the glasses that it hadn't occurred to me that the glasses might hurt his face. The thick plastic had cut a small scrape into his nose. For years after that, I was haunted by the recklessness of what I'd done, by the thought that the cut on his nose could have been deeper, or worse, the glass of his lenses might have shattered and cut his eye. Now you can get a new pair, I said. I wanted him to think I'd done this for him. He looked up from the broken glasses and into my eye, a kind of disbelief in his. He was calling my bluff. He and I both knew this wasn't a favor I'd done him, but he didn't say anything. He just turned his eyes back to the glasses and took the opportunity I'd given him to pretend this was an act of kindness. That's true, he said. We never talked about it again after that. In the dream, Jacob and I were walking through a wide open field in some far off place. Each time, the field looked a little different. Sometimes it was brighter, a richer shade of green. Sometimes the grass was more yellow, drier, like straw. And sometimes I could barely see the field at all. It was nighttime. In some of the dreams we were young, that age when we both had buzz cuts, or I'd see us later, 11 or so, when Jacob was overweight for a brief time, his height not having caught up yet with his boyish appetite. And sometimes we were older, the age I am now, a man with a family, responsibilities, a mortgage. And that dream he was that way too, grown, a man I never knew. But every time Jacob and I were walking side by side, right next to each other, close, I was holding his elbow and leading him forward. Careful, okay, you can step, I'd say to him. We moved slowly through the field this way. Each step took what felt like an eternity and was filled with so much anxiety, so much apprehension. Each step was laced with the possibility that I could kill Jacob. The field we were walking through was planted with landmines, and because Jacob didn't have his glasses, I was his eyes. 
In the dream, I am leaned forward, my neck wrenched to see the ground in front of me, and then in front of him. When it looked safe, I'd tell him, okay, step, and he would. This might go on for a long time, for what seemed like forever, this horrendously careful walking, and every step the possibility I'd make a deadly mistake, and then I did. There was always a moment in the dream when I got distracted, didn't look hard enough or close enough or carefully enough, when I told Jacob to take a step, and he did, and then a bomb exploded. Then I woke up, the agony of walking him across that field of death beating on my brow, soaking into my sheets. I didn't even know if the dream had any plausibility at all. I mean, of course I wasn't going to be leading Jacob across a field of landmines, but I wondered about it. Was it even possible to see landmines? When I first started having this dream, I had this need to look up details like this, as if learning the impossibility of the dream might make it feel less real. Of course it wouldn't. Dreams are by definition surreal, defying reason and the laws of our world, but I looked anyway. Some landmines, the ones sitting on the surface of the ground, could be seen, and they looked like old-school video game controllers, something analog from the 70s. But many of them, most of them, were buried underground, invisible and unavoidable, warp pipes to some never-before-discovered level, some inescapable fate. In this short excerpt from the beginning of your novel, you provide two big windows into how the novel will progress. We see our narrator, Joe, shifting back and forth between memories of his childhood and his present-day adulthood, and to the fact that Joe's friend, Jacob, is dead. What we don't learn in this excerpt is that Jacob's death came as a result of a violent moment which we might consider similar to some of the public or, or school shootings that have become so pervasive in our culture. Yeah, um, the story moves back and forth between a present moment narrative, which is Joe kind of in his, um, in his work life and in the life that he's kind of created moving back to the neighborhood that he grew up in. So it kind of moves between that thread and his memories with Jacob. So this is an early one, and there are others along the way that kind of um, move move with them as they get older, and they kind of show the intimacy that's between them always, I'd say, but especially when they're young, and then how they kind of shift in and out of that as they get older, and then eventually um, how they kind of they kind of just move apart. One thing that I wonder about already from this brief introduction to your characters is their dynamic together. Jacob is set up as this unfortunately awkward, bullied kid, which I suppose in itself could, over the long term, fuel a, a violent snap. But Joe's character is an interesting companion. He sees how awkward Jacob is, and he's clearly embarrassed by or for him. His behavior towards Jacob pretends to be kind, and, and I think Joe truly believes that he is being kind, but he's clearly not fully supportive of Jacob on some level. Can you talk about their personalities and relationship? I love that even in the first few pages, we can already see this deep flaw in Joe that he clearly doesn't see himself. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, for me, that what you've brought up is kind of the main, the main thing about this book that I've been working on a lot, which is how much, how much does Joe see and how much does he not see? And I think for me, the kind of growth that happens over the narrative is that he comes to see more of this. And, and really, I think there's a little bit of flux that happens between the characters because we um, sometimes see Jacob in the way he described, where he's kind of the, the maybe the weaker one or the more vulnerable one. And then it flip-flops at times. And so it's a little bit about um, just their dynamic as, as a pair and as two boys, um, neither, neither whom have siblings. So there's this kind of almost sibling rivalry that happens between them along the way a little bit. And they tend to, they're kind of always moving, I think in the way siblings do, between helping each other and wanting just to be there for each other, and then also wanting to kind of like cut each other down at times. So I think that is kind of a movement that happens over the course of the novel that Joe is kind of becoming more aware of. Do you feel like anyone is clearly implicated in what eventually happens to Jacob? Or do you feel like it's more difficult to tease out? 
that there are all of these small interactions and scenarios that are just too tightly woven to extract a clear and perhaps comforting um, sense of responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what Joe's trying to do is tease all that out and see if he can make sense of what happened to Jacob. And he's looking at it from a lot of different perspectives. He's looking at it from really understanding in a deep way the the culture and the context that Jacob grew up in because Joe grew up in that context too. So he's looking at it from that sense, but he's also looking at it from his own sort of his own perspective of did I have a hand in this and what what role did I play in this or what could I have done differently? Mm-hmm. So there I think I think the book is a lot about kind of guilt and 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 forgiveness and trying to figure out um who has who has ownership, if anybody, over over this thing that's happened, and it's. I think he's hoping to find a really sort of clear cut answer along the way, but that's part of what he struggles with along the way too. Yeah, that's interesting too. Trying to determine or watch Joe determine if he had any role in Jacob's actions, but I think it moves beyond that. Um, As you mentioned, they grew up in the same context and circumstances, so I can only imagine that some of Joe's retrospection also comes out of a fear where Joe has to ask himself if he could have or still could be capable of similar actions. Absolutely. Because his actions, trying to save his friend from perpetual nerddom, are really more about Joe just not wanting his friend to be the awkward kid. But he's convinced himself that his actions are generous rather than damaging. It seems like a little microcosm of the larger questions that Joe faces over the course of the novel. Yeah, I think that's a big part of what Joe is kind of grappling with. He's thinking a lot about how horrendous this act was and how how that fits with the Jacob he knew or, or who he thought he knew. And... Um, as he looks back at these specific moments, like the glasses, and there are a lot of other moments like that throughout the story, he's wondering about the role he played in it in, in opposition to Jacob. Like, who was the one who was at fault and who was the one who was acting from a place of, from a place of destruction, really, towards the other person? Uh, and I think he's trying to, um, to do that for the reason that you said, because it's hard for him to understand how somebody who he felt so close to and so similar to could have done something like this, which of course brings up the question of, do I have that in me too? Yeah, it's just this real loss of trust, not only in your friend, but you know, acknowledging that, that this impulse could be in yourself or, or anyone you encounter. And, and where does it come from? What, what is it? So you're nearly finished with the novel, and you've been working on it for about about five years? About five years, yeah. Okay, so what inspired you to tackle this topic, which is something that increasing amounts of people actually have to deal with in American society? Yeah, um, it was something that I had felt preoccupied by for a long time way before I started writing it. just just all those questions that we that you know we've been talking about of, where does this come from, and and how, can a can a person sort of carry the seed of that for a long time, and or not, or does it something that kind of comes um, comes out of nowhere? And when I moved to Tucson about, gosh, it was five and a half years ago, I moved there right after the the Gabriel Gifford shooting, and I, I moved there about six months after, and I remember just noticing that the city was still very much kind of like collectively grieving what had happened. I would people, I would meet people who would live there and who would just start talking to me about it. I would, you know, run into somebody who had known someone who was in the shooting or I met, I met a woman who had gone to high school with the boy who committed the crime. So I just was thinking about it a lot. And I was just like really kind of obsessed about the fact that I was living very close to where this this kid had grown up and and I was just trying to like reconcile that how is it that this is a person who comes from this world that we all live in and yet he can do he can do something like this so that's kind of I I think it was just I felt very much like it was kind of around me this topic about 
um, you know, guns and violence. Like, you know, I grew up in Texas. I was living in Arizona. People love their guns there. So I think it, I think it came out of feeling sort of a gun culture around me and also a, a, a lack of understanding on my part of how, of how those things are all connected in a way. And it seems like you're also trying to find some of these connections by exploring empathy and how we can take an empathetic view um, of of all parties involved. Yeah, it's something that I've really struggled with uh, in writing this book along the way, and especially when I was just starting it. the The question of is it okay to write a book where I show empathy for someone who committed a crime like that, and um, if I do. Is that is that somehow disrespectful of, of anybody? So I thought about that a lot, and um, I also struggled a lot with the idea of the book as kind of an issues book. I really didn't want to write an issues book. It, for me, it's not about um, you know choosing a side and making an argument for it. It's I really wanted to tell the story of somebody who. Uh, is in a way a victim of this, even though he wasn't there at the time. He wasn't. Joe was not there for the crime, but he's a he's a victim of this. And um, how how and why that is, and how and and why he's sort of still empathetic and and loving to his friend who who did this horrible thing, even though Joe can see it for what it is. It's this horrendous act of murder. Mm-hmm. He still is empathetic to his friend in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Lila, for reading for us and keep us updated about the novel's future. up our episode. I'm Amanda Smith, your host and program director here at KHN. KHN is made possible by the generous support of the Richard P. and Lorraine Kimmel Charitable Foundation. The intro and outro music is Sirens by Jeff Harms, who was a resident here in 2008. If you would like more information about our program or to learn about any of our featured artists and residents, please visit our website, khncenterforthearts.org or come visit us in Nebraska City.